Chapter One of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter One. They too retired to the wilderness, but twas with arms. Paradise regained. The burning sun of Syria had not yet attained its highest point in the horizon, when a knight of the Red Cross, who had left his distant northern home and joined the host of the Crusades in Palestine, was pacing slowly along the sandy deserts which lie in the vicinity of the Dead Sea, or, as it is called, the Lake Asphaltites, where the waves of the Jordan pour themselves into an inland sea, from which there is no discharge of waters. The warlike pilgrim had toiled among cliffs and precipices during the earlier part of the morning. More lately, issuing from those rocky and dangerous defiles, he had entered upon that great plain, where the accursed city provoked, in ancient days, the direct and dreadful vengeance of the Omnipotent. The toil, the thirst, the dangers of the way were forgotten, as the traveller recalled the fearful catastrophe which had converted into an arid and dismal wilderness the fair and fertile valley of Sidim, once well watered, even as the garden of the Lord, now a parched and blighted waste, condemned to eternal sterility. Crossing himself, as he viewed the dark mass of rolling waters, in colour as in duality unlike those of any other lake, the traveller shuddered as he remembered that beneath these sluggish waves lay the once proud cities of the plain, whose grave was dug by the thunder of the heavens, or the eruption of subterraneous fire, and whose remains were hid, even by that sea which holds no living fish in its bosom, bears no skiff on its surface, and, as if its own dreadful bed were the only fit receptacle for its sullen waters, sends not, like other lakes, a tribute to the ocean. The whole land around, as in the days of Moses, was brimstone and salt. It is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth thereon. The land as well as the lake might be termed dead, as producing nothing having resemblance to vegetation and even the very air was entirely devoid of its ordinary winged inhabitants, deterred probably by the odour of bitumen and sulphur, which the burning sun exhaled from the waters of the lake in steaming clouds, frequently assuming the appearance of water-spouts. Masses of the slimy and sulphurous substance called naphtha, which floated idly on the sluggish and sullen waves, supplied those rolling clouds with new vapours, and afforded awful testimony to the truth of the mosaic history. Upon this scene of desolation, the sun shone with almost intolerable splendour, and all living nature seemed to have hidden itself from the rays, except in the solitary figure, which moved through the flitting sand at a foot's pace, and appeared the sole breathing thing on the wide surface of the plain. The dress of the rider and the accoutrements of his horse were peculiarly unfit for the travel in such a country, 
a coat of linked mail with long sleeves, plated gauntlets, and a steel breastplate, had not been esteemed a sufficient weight of armour. There were also his triangular shield, suspended round his neck, and his barred helmet of steel, over which he had a hood and collar of mail, which was drawn around the warrior's shoulders and throat, and filled up the vacancy between the hubric and the headpiece. His lower limbs were sheathed, like his body, in flexible mail, securing the legs and thighs, while the feet rested in plated shoes, which corresponded with the gauntlets. A long, broad, straight-shaped, double-edged falchion, with a handle formed like a cross, corresponded with the stout poignard on the other side. The knight also bore, secured to his saddle, with one end resting on his stirrup, the long steel-headed lance, his own proper weapon, which, as he rode, projected backwards and displayed its little penicel, to dally with the faint breeze or drop in the dead calm. To this cumbrous equipment must be added a surcoat of embroidered cloth, much frayed and worn, which was thus far useful that it excluded the burning rays of the sun from the armour, which they would otherwise have rendered intolerable to the wearer. The surcoat bore, in several places, the arms of the owner, although much defaced. These seemed to be a couchant leopard, with the motto, I sleep, wake me not. An outline of the same device might be traced on his shield, though many a blow had almost effaced the painting. The flat top of his cumbrous cylindrical helmet was unadorned with any crest. In retaining their own unwieldy defensive armour, the northern crusaders seemed to set a defiance at the nature of the climate and country to which they had come to war. The accoutrements of the horse were scarcely less massive and unwieldy than those of the rider. The animal had a heavy saddle, plated with steel, uniting in front with a species of breastplate, and behind with defensive armour made to cover the loins. There was a steel axe, or hammer, called a mace of arms, and which hung to the saddle-bow. The reins were secured by chain-work, and the front stall of the bridle was a steel plate, with apertures for the eyes and nostrils, having in the midst a short, sharp pike, projecting from the forehead of the horse like the horn of the fabulous unicorn. But habit had made the endurance of this load of panoply a second nature, both to the knight and his gallant charger. Numbers, indeed, of the western warriors who hurried to Palestine died ere they became inured to the burning climate. But there were others to whom that climate became innocent and even friendly, and among this fortunate number was the solitary horseman who now traversed the border of the Dead Sea. Nature, which cast his limbs in the mould of uncommon strength, fitted to wear his linked hubric with as much ease as if the meshes had been formed of cobwebs, had endowed him with a constitution as strong as his limbs, and which bade defiance to almost all changes of climate, as well as to fatigue and privations of every kind. His disposition seemed, in some degree, to partake of the qualities of his bodily frame, and as the one possessed great strength and endurance, united with the power of violent exertion. The other, under a calm and undisturbed semblance, 
had much of the fiery and enthusiastic love of glory which constituted the principal attribute of the renowned norman line and had rendered them sovereigns in every corner of europe where they had drawn their adventurous swords it was not however to all the race that fortune proposed such tempting rewards and to those obtained by the solitary knight during two years campaign in palestine had been only temporal fame and as he was taught to believe spiritual privileges meantime his slender stock of money had melted away the rather that he did not pursue any of the ordinary modes by which the followers of the crusade condescended to recruit the diminished resources at the expense of the people of palestine he exacted no gifts from the wretched natives for sparing their possessions when engaged in warfare with the saracens and he had not availed himself of any opportunity of enriching himself by the ransom of prisoners of consequence the small train which had followed him from his native country had been gradually diminished as the means of maintaining them disappeared and his only remaining squire was at present on a sick-bed and unable to attend his master who travelled as we have seen singly and alone this was of little consequence to the crusader who was accustomed to consider his good sword as his safest escort and devout thoughts as his best companion nature had however her demands for refreshment and repose even on the iron frame and patient disposition of the knight of the sleeping leopard and at noon when the dead sea lay at some distance on his right he joyfully hailed the sight of two or three palm-trees which arose beside the well which was assigned for his midday station his good horse too which had plodded forward with the steady endurance of his master now lifted his head expanded his nostrils and quickened his pace as if he snuffed afar off the living waters which marked the place of repose and refreshment but labour and danger were doomed to intervene ere the horse or horseman reached the desired spot as the knight of the cruchant leopard continued to fix his eyes attentively on the yet distant cluster of palm-trees it seemed to him as if some object was moving among them the distant form separated itself from the trees which partly hid its motions and advanced towards the knight with a speed which soon showed a mounted horseman whom his turban long spear and green caftan floating in the wind on his nearer approach showed to be a saracen cavalier in the desert saith an eastern proverb no man meets a friend the crusader was totally indifferent whether the infidel who now appeared on his gallant barb as if borne on the wings of an eagle came as friend or foe perhaps as a vowed champion of the cross he might rather have preferred the latter he disengaged his lance from his saddle seized it with the right hand placed it in rest with its point half elevated gathered up the reins in the left walked his horse's metal with the spur and prepared to encounter the stranger with the calm self-confidence belonging to the victor in many contests the saracen came on at the speedy gallop of an arab horseman managing his steed more by his limbs and the infliction of his body than by any use of the reins which hung loose in his left hand 
so that he was able to wield the light round buckler of the skin of the rhinoceros, ornamented with silver loops, which he bore on his arm, swinging it as if he meant to oppose its slender circle to the formidable thrust of the western lance. His own spear was not couched or levelled, like that of his antagonist, but grasped by the middle with his right hand, and brandished at arm's length above his head. As the cavalier approached his enemy at full career, he seemed to expect that the knight of the leopard should put his horse to the gallop to encounter him. But the Christian knight, well acquainted with the customs of eastern warriors, did not mean to exhaust his good horse by any unnecessary exertion, and on the contrary made a dead halt, confident that if the enemy advanced to the actual shock, his own weight and that of his powerful charger would give him sufficient advantage without the additional momentum of rapid motion. Equally sensible and apprehensive of such a probable result, the Saracen cavalier, when he had approached towards the Christian, within twice the length of his lance, wheeled his steed to the left with inimitable dexterity, and rode twice around his antagonist, who, turning without quitting his ground, and presenting his front constantly to his enemy, frustrated his attempts to attack him on an unguarded point, so that the Saracen, wheeling his horse, was fain to retreat to the distance of a hundred yards. A second time, like a hawk attacking a heron, the heathen renewed the charge, and a second time was fain to retreat without coming close to a struggle. A third time he approached in the same manner, when the Christian knight, desirous to terminate this illusory warfare, in which he might at length have been worn out by the activity of his foemen, suddenly seized the mace which hung at his saddle-bow, and with a strong hand and unerring aim, hurled it against the head of the emir, for such and not less his enemy appeared. The Saracen was just aware of the formidable missile in time to interpose his light buckler betwixt the mace and his head. But the violence of the blow forced the buckler down on his turban, and though that defence also contributed to deaden its violence, the Saracen was beaten from his horse. Ere the Christian could avail himself of this mishap, his nimble foeman sprang from the ground, and, calling on his steed, which instantly returned to his side, he leapt into his seat without touching the stirrup, and regained all the advantage of which the knight of the leopard hoped to deprive him. But the latter had, in the meanwhile, recovered his mace, and the eastern cavalier, who remembered the strength and dexterity with which his antagonist had aimed it, seemed to keep cautiously out of reach of that weapon, of which he had so lately felt the force, while he showed a purpose of waging a distant warfare with missile weapons of his own. Planting his long spear in the sand at a distance from the scene of combat, he strung with great address a short bow, which he carried at his back, and, putting his horse to the gallop, once more described two or three circles of a wider extent than formerly in the course of which he discharged six arrows at the Christian, with such an erring skill that the goodness of his harness alone saved him from being wounded in as many places. The seventh shaft apparently found a less perfect part of the armour, and the Christian dropped heavily from his horse. But what was the surprise of the Saracen, 
when, dismounting to examine the condition of his prostrate enemy, he found himself suddenly within the grasp of the European, who had had recourse to this artifice to bring his enemy within his reach. Even in this deadly grapple the Saracen was saved by his agility and presence of mind. He unloosed the sword-belt in which the knight of the leopard had fixed his hold, and thus eluding his fatal grasp, mounted his horse, which seemed to watch his motions with the intelligence of a human being, and again rode off. But in the last encounter the Saracen had lost his sword and his quiver of arrows, both of which were attached to the girdle which he was obliged to abandon. He had also lost his turban in the struggle. These disadvantages seemed to incline the Muslim to a truce. He approached the Christian with his right hand extended, but no longer in a menacing attitude. "'There is a truce betwixt our nations,' he said, in the lingu franca, commonly used for the purpose of communication with the crusaders. "'Wherefore should there be war betwixt thee and me? Let there be peace betwixt us.' "'I am well contented,' answered he of the crucian leopard. "'But what security dost thou offer that thou wilt observe the truce?' "'The word of a follower of the prophet was never broken,' answered the emir. "'It is thou, brave Nazarene, for whom I should demand security. "'Did I not know that treason seldom dwells with courage?' The crusader felt that the confidence of the Muslim made him ashamed of his own doubts. "'By the cross of my sword,' he said, laying his hand on the weapon as he spoke, "'I will be a true companion to thee, Saracen, while our fortune wills that we remain in company together. "'By Mohammed, prophet of God, and by Allah, God of the prophet,' replied his late foeman, "'there is not treachery in my heart towards thee.' "'And now wend we to yonder fountain, for the hour of rest is at hand, "'and the stream had hardly touched my lip when I was called to battle by thy approach.' "'The knight of the Crucian leopard yielded a ready and courteous assent, "'and the late foes, without an angry look or gesture of doubt, "'rode side by side to the little cluster of palm-trees.' End of chapter 1